Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am Hannah May, and this is Flying Faith Talks, the official podcast for flyingfaith.org, where we find the adventurous, the wondrous, and the unknown through the Bible in our everyday. Today's episode was recorded on February 22nd. This is episode number 18, and our title today is Catching Echoes. Bravery is always difficult. I mean, the epitome of being brave is to step out there even when you're scared. And despite the fact that our Bible encourages us to be strong and courageous in our faith, that hasn't stopped so many Christians from feeling afraid to share the gospel and to speak the truth to others. And we can talk a pretty good game when we're in Bible study and or in our Christian social groups. And even in cases when we look to each other and we try to encourage each other, yeah, you should share a witness with this person or that person. They say, yeah, I really should. But more often than not, when we get to that moment, when we see that window, some of us, we just can't do it. We just can't bring ourselves to do it. And you know what? That is no different even among Christian creatives when we write a story or when we paint a particular painting and we're thinking, I want to challenge my audience who sees what I'm making here with the gospel and to present the truth of the word. But at the same time, we have that niggling doubt in the back of our heads. I know I keep using the term niggling doubt on this show, but that is really what it is, isn't it? It's that doubt that just kind of tickles the back of your head. It's annoying. It's unrelenting. Worst of all, it's persuasive. I think anyone would be lying or wouldn't have to agree that there are times when we say, I know what the Bible says. I know what my faith is supposed to lead me towards. Yet, when you get to that moment, you just can't do it, or you just can't bring yourself to fully believe in it enough to take action. And I'm not saying that to condemn you guys, the listeners. I am guilty of that myself, especially where patience for my sisters are concerned. (laughs) I know the Lord would tell me to be compassionate, be patient. He's in control, so I shouldn't be bothered if I feel like my sisters are getting in the way of my plans. But whenever they do, I can't help but just doubt God and start trying to fix things myself. (laughs) It backfires pretty much every time. (laughs) But when it comes to the doubts that we innately start getting whenever we try to share the gospel in any way, shape, or form, whether it's speaking it or showing it. One of the most common things I hear in my Bible study group, with my family, with my friends, and on the Facebook writing groups that I visit once in a while, one of the number one reasons that I hear someone express a timidness to showing the gospel so often is because they feel like No one else is going to care. No one is going to know what you're talking about. Or these people are too far gone to accept any scriptural message of any kind. And while there is merit to this, after all, the Bible does say, do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them and then turn on you. Sadly, such a mindset, though, when you take it to an extreme, robs us of that boldness that we need to express the gospel in our works, in our words, and in our lives. 
And while it is true that we do live in an age of immense ignorance of Christ, the gospel, and his word, a part of me does feel like the constant statements of how many people have never even heard of the word Jesus is not simply troubling on its own, but it's also troubling for us to keep hearing all the time because it just further perpetuates the idea that too many people don't even know the Bible And unfortunately, that prospect intimidates many Christians, both new Christians who are fresh on the faith or those who have been at it for a long time, but maybe they're not quite as avid in their scriptural reading or avid in their walk at this time. They just feel like, I don't know enough. I can't talk to these people because as soon as I talk to them, they're going to challenge me and then I'm going to be all flustered to have the right answer. So I don't even want that confrontation. And you know, I get it. It's uncomfortable and you feel like you're being attacked on all sides and you're supposed to do things well. And guys, we need to get the pressure off though, because there's an innate feeling in every Christian when they're put in a tight spot to defend God, as if we are failing him. If somebody walks away from a conversation with us and they still don't believe in God, or they maybe outright hate him all the more, or They think high and mighty of themselves like, ha, we bested you, which means your faith is not real or what you believe in is a hogwash. And thus we start feeling like, you know, that small voice in the barren desert, weak, ineffectual, pointless. But guys, let me take this time in this episode to assure you, whether you are a creative person or not, That there is a not-so-secret secret from the truth of God's word that if you hold fast to, will set you free from all that doubt. Just that you have to know, as soon as I say it, it's going to sound nuts. But those people around us who don't know our faith, don't know the biblical God, maybe even never even heard of the name Jesus, they're not as ignorant of God as they think they are. And they're most definitely not as ignorant of the Bible and its truth as we are often led to believe they are. We as a church, for a lengthy amount of time, often accept the myth that people either have access to knowing God or they do not have access to knowing God. And I'm not talking about special knowledge that comes from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit and what it reveals to us in the word is only accessible by those who have accepted Christ in their lives. Only them. But the kind of knowledge I'm talking about that everyone has access to and innately believes in their heart of hearts is that God does exist and the biblical God is him. I can already hear some of you hearing that and thinking I'm some kind of crazy lunatic. (laughs) Because that sounds like something that's too good to be true sometimes. I mean, in this fallen world with the kind of depravity that we see and the kind of hostility we constantly see against anything scriptural, how can we possibly believe that in their heart of hearts they know the biblical God? Because if they knew the biblical God, why wouldn't they worship him already? Why do they reject him so much? Well, if you accept the world's idea that mankind is basically good, then yeah, that would not make sense whatsoever. 
But if the Bible is right, mankind is naturally sinful and wicked and doesn't want to acknowledge God. Because what is God? God is light. And what is exposed in the light? Our wickedness. We don't want to be accountable. But of course, even if you do believe in this sort of thing, some of us might be tempted to ask, how do we know? And then those of you who are creatives, who work on books, work on games, work on movies, work on art and music, how should that affect us? Or what bearing does that have in how we create? Well, let's first start with the first question here. Is it really true that every man in their heart of hearts knows the biblical God, including your annoying next door neighbor and that one villager who's living in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? Well, first of all, we know that everyone in the heart of hearts knows a biblical God because the Bible says so. All of the Bible is God-breathed and holy and true. So if God says that every man in their heart of hearts knows him, then it really must be true. Starting with Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, that is mankind, are without excuse. Or how about Romans 1, 28 and 32? And since they, that is people, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So right off the bat, God is declaring that because of his divine nature being evident in the creation all around us, you know, the mastermind intelligence behind how everything was made from the smallest molecule to the moon and the sun, there's no way that a person can deny that only a God like the one described in the Bible could have produced this. I mean, even people who maybe worship another God, Allah could not have produced this sort of thing. Buddha couldn't have produced this sort of thing. They don't have the right qualities in order to put this together. And I know some of you are thinking, how can you say that, Hannah? Because if they're God, you know, any sort of God, all they have to do is speak creation and poof, there it is. But here's the thing. If you really look at nature and how it's created, all of it points even to the gospel message itself. From the transformation that we Christians experience into newness of life that is portrayed in the caterpillar that turns into a butterfly, right down to a particular type of molecule, or maybe it's a protein, I can't remember which, whose design is necessary for all life here on earth, yet its shape and form is that of a cross. It's incredible. Everything from the trees to the animals, they all present the gospel message in some form, even if the sin curse has marred a few things. And no man can get away from that, so already they can't deny that fact. But another thing that they can't deny that the rest of this chapter of Romans has blatantly pointed out is that they innately already know that right and wrong exists, they already know that there is a certain way to do things that is correct and ways that are wrong. In other words, laws of logic, you know, the presence of morality, laws of logic. These are things that nobody has to be taught, and yet it's something that everyone is aware of, regardless if they live in 
Moscow or if they live in the middle of the Sahara. People automatically know that certain things like lying is wrong, murder is wrong, and so on. And even if you point that out to someone and they say, well, I only do that because I want to be, I want to treat them the way I want to be treated. Well, guess what? That came from the book of Hebrews. Treat others as you want to be treated. You see, people, regardless if they believed in the Bible or not, they have to live based off of those principles or they can't live at all. It's impossible. It's like someone claiming I don't need air to breathe, yet they're breathing air in order to make the argument that they don't need air to breathe. Because if we truly did disassociate ourselves from anything and everything about the scriptures, we'd be reduced to absolute absurdity. We just can't function, period. And you know, we can even look at more verses from the scripture that also further exemplify the facts that we just read in Romans. If you go to Psalm 19, I mean, you can read the entire psalm. And I highly recommend you do. It's a great psalm, as if there is such a thing as a bad psalm. But if I just read the first few verses here, it starts with, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So here in the scriptures, God is revealing that the stars, the sun, the moon, the constellation, just about everything up in the heavens and the sky that we look upon, they are his heralds. And day to day, even when they don't technically speak, they are constantly pouring out speech that declares the God of the Bible is who formed us. And then if you go to the aspect about people already knowing what morality is and what laws of logic is, you know, because God put it there, literally. You can go to another great passage in 2 Timothy 3. And, I mean, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but if you read the first verse into the second verse, like the beginning of the second verse, and then you jump down to verse 5, here's what it says. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Let me repeat that last part right there. They are having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And denial is not the same thing as ignorance. Ignorance is when you have absolutely no knowledge of something. Like it's completely outside of your ability to know. You had no way of acquiring that knowledge. You are not responsible. But Here, the Bible did not use the word ignorance. We are not ignorant of godliness's source and its power. We are denying its power. And even with the original Greek word that was used in this verse, it literally means to disown. And disowning, denying, that is an active choice. It is something that we purposely did. And what's especially amazing, this whole idea of us having an appearance of godliness yet denying its power, we can see that happening all the time. Just recently, you know, watching the Super Bowl, they always give that trophy Man of the Year award to one of the players. And it's usually given to the one who is the most charitable or who helped his community the most. You know, all good things. So here we have an appearance of godliness. But what so often do they credit that godly action for? Most often the goodness of that winner's heart. But what does the Bible say about the heart? It is desperately wicked. It is naturally selfish. I mean, even when we do kind things, if it's without God, 
lots of times it's because we want to feel good about ourselves. It's like you can sleep at night because you fed a kid. In and of itself, that's a self-centered thought process, which means it's selfish. But in today's modern world, <laughs> the heart, you know, that desperately wicked part of you is the source of goodness. It's not coming from a holy God, most certainly not the biblical God. It's your heart. You're just an innately good person. And sadly, those same exact words has probably doomed more people in human history than anything anybody has ever done, even the atomic bomb. And we see the same exact issue, the same exact evidence that people in their heart of hearts know the biblical God in just about every other aspect of society too. I mean, take our stories, for example. How many times have you seen a movie that was super good, had a lot of great virtues in it, and yet it just falls short of the truth of the word? Likely, that's the vast majority of the movies that we see, especially when they come from Hollywood or from a director who has no understanding of Scripture. A lack of understanding is not the same thing as not knowing the biblical God. It simply means that you know of him, but you don't know much about him. And evidence of this shows up in those little snippets, those little ringing bells of truth that we see in fiction. How about the Santa Claus films? One of our family's favorite lines from that movie is, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. And you know what? That is absolutely biblically accurate. It is very true. Especially when you compare it to verses that you read in Hebrews 11. But they fall short because there's no mention of the biblical God. It's a principle that they are applying to the belief of Santa Claus and elves. Consider the adult mystery film Knives Out. You have a main character who basically wins the day because they didn't play the same game as everyone else. Everyone else acted vindictively and selfishly, but because this main character acted compassionately and with consideration for others, they win the day. That feeds from several passages that you can find in Proverbs that talk about how schemers are trapped in their own nets and fall to their own pits, while the upright's path is sure and straight. Unfortunately, though, Knives Out attributes that goodness to the goodness of that character's heart, as if some people just happen to be innately born with it. But perhaps my personal favorite that I always think of whenever I consider a form of godliness but denying its source would be the video game Journey. Now, if you're not a gamer, you probably have not heard of this game. It released back in 2012, and it is often credited as the game that sparked huge interest in independent game development. And what's more, it's one of those games that I can readily recommend to just about anybody, regardless if you're into video games or not. It's short, you can literally play it in one sitting. It is gorgeously beautiful. In fact, the development to make it so beautiful has bankrupted the studio that made it at least two or three times. And its story resonated with so many players that many of them cried, outright cried including me, <laughs> all because the story touched quite closely to what the Bible referred to as the desire for eternity that's in every man's heart. And you can find that passage in Ecclesiastes, that we as human beings, we long for the eternal because that's what we were originally made for. We were made for eternal fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the story of this video game journey is you're this cloaked traveler that's passing through this desert trying to reach a shining mountain peak. 
And the trials and situations you go through is almost reminiscent to one of my favorite books, Pilgrim's Progress. If any of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, the story is about the man named Christian who's trying to journey to the celestial city, which is reminiscent and is an allegory to the Christian's journey to heaven. Journey's story and climax runs along a similar level, and it does so without dialogue. Again, this is just an amazing masterpiece of game design. If you haven't played it, you should. It's great. But the fact is that you still don't have the biblical element to it that's really going to complete the thought here. Because with all the examples I've provided previously, they run on biblical principle. But because they are lacking the gospel message, they are the lacking the source of goodness, then there are gaps in their logic. There are gaps in their thinking. They have a basic idea of the destination, but what they lack is the map. Now, of course, some of you still might feel like that really only applies to first world countries where a Bible is readily accessible. What about third world countries? Isolated villages? Or maybe even some of you might be even wondering, what about those Gentile nations before the birth of Christ? And I admit, this is an area where I personally struggle the most with the concept of everyone in their heart of hearts knowing the biblical God. And I was especially faced with it as I'm writing my prequel, Celestial Age of Silence, because my main character, I have basically designed to be a Gentile believer in 430 BC, living in the Scandinavian Peninsula area. And I had to keep asking myself, is there any possibility or credence to that question? You know, could there be someone in that era of time before Christ had his message and before he sent his disciples out into all the world with the gospel that there would be a follower of the biblical God who would be waiting for a savior? Is that even possible? And the more I looked into it, both in the scripture and even in modern day examples, it collaborates with everything God said about no man having the excuse of not knowing who he is. Their hearts echo with his truth. Even if echoes are faint, and even if we may not always know where an echo comes from, when you hear an echo, you know it's coming from somewhere. And you know that wherever it's coming from, it's coming from something that exists. These echoes of knowledge ring true in the centurion who sought Jesus to heal his servant. And even Jesus acknowledged the centurion stating, of all the people in Israel, none had faith in him like this Gentile centurion. And then later you have other Gentile believers, such as the Ethiopian who was pondering over a copy of the prophets, and I believe it was Isaiah, and seeking to understand more about the coming Messiah and who he is. Or we can go to the Old Testament, the Queen of Sheba. She heard about Solomon's greatness, and she heard about the God of Israel, and she wanted to go see for herself. Or you even have Nineveh, for example. Yeah, the Ninevites were incredibly wicked, and Jonah did not want to have anything to do with them. But when he came and he gave the simple message that Yahweh was going to destroy their city in a matter of 39 days, the Ninevites knew enough about God, the biblical God of Israel, to know how to respond. They ripped their clothes. They mourned from the heart. They cried out to him because they knew that he was a merciful God and there was a chance that he might turn and save them. Does that sound like a people who are completely ignorant of the biblical God? No. No, it doesn't. And Nineveh sits many, many miles away from Israel at this point in history. And do you really want your socks blown off? 
there's a possibility now we're not 100 percent sure yet but there are biblical theologians and historians who think there's a possibility that elijah one of the most famous prophets in all of scripture might have been a gentile himself now how can all these gentile believers be well some of us might look at it to say well they live close enough to israel they probably were nearby enough to hear word of mouth very true yes and there's probably you know as we saw with the ethiopian he had a copy of isaiah in his hand so there's high chances that there were many copies of the old scriptures and the torah that ended up going far and wide and then there's also the exile of israel to consider like when they were deported into babylon and ended up in persia and in assyria which especially would give rise to why men from the far east the magi would know how to seek and to look for and to worship the coming messiah even though again they were gentiles likely gentiles anyway but what about nations further out like say china well are you ready to have your mind blown again because there's evidence that the ancient chinese knew and even worshiped the biblical god as well take the ancient tradition of the border sacrifice for example the chinese their emperor would sacrifice a white bull on an altar to a god that they refer to as the most high and a god that expressed triune attributes you know a trinity and also look toward a coming messiah now this god they referred to as shang ti but you got to remember god mixed up the languages at the tower of babel too so it's still likely the biblical god and on top of that their writing system whoever invented it knew about the creation story and he knew about noah as well you see chinese calligraphy is where they combined specific symbols in order to get a particular meaning so let's look at a few of these real quick and then you're going to see what i mean very quickly uh for example the symbol for forbidden and to warn now that symbol in chinese calligraphy the two signs that are combined together to make the word for forbidden and to warn includes the sign for two trees and the abbreviated sign for god two trees and god together for the word forbidden to warn sound familiar or how about the symbol for boat this one combines three different characters to create the symbol it combines the characters vessel eight and people one more time vessel eight and people again this sounds an awful lot like noah his three sons and their wives and then here's a real fun one right here this is this one's a pretty big one the word tempter now this one actually first requires you to put together a symbol for the word devil <laughs> already our ears are ringing here but in order to get the symbol for devil so that you can eventually make the word tempter you have to combine the words secret man garden and alive those together make devil secret man garden and alive and then after you make the devil sign you would then combine it with the word for trees and the word for cover trees and cover i don't know like covering one's sin after you've bitten something from one of the two trees you weren't supposed to at the temptation of a devil those three devil trees and cover make the chinese character for tempter and the evidence just keeps going on and on and on and if you want a broader sense of the ancient world's knowledge of the biblical god just consider how many flood myths there are in native america 
South America, Europe, Asia, Africa. So many of them have a story of some kind where a man and a woman survive a massive flood in a boat. I don't know. It sounds like something really, really happened that everyone just can't shake off or forget. Sure, the myths are warped a bit. You know, it's got a lot of fantastical elements in there that we know didn't happen. But, you know, that's what happens when stories get passed on over and over and over again. But still, the evidence is there. Last but not least, for a modern day example that everyone in their heart of hearts know the biblical God and there's no excuse for not acknowledging him and his son, even today, in the most unlikely of places and among the unlikeliest of people, God always has a way of revealing himself because he's not limited to human means, you know. He's, he doesn't have to rely on mankind to pass the word around about him or even for them to see the Bible. He can still reveal himself. And I think one of the most amazing things I can think of right now is in those Muslim countries where, you know, you have a lot of radical Islamists. We're seeing a massive number of them converting to Christianity because they were receiving dreams and visions of Jesus. And we know this isn't a passing fad because several of these former Islamists, they've been put to death, but they wouldn't recant on their new faith. They wouldn't just shy away and say, oh, I was just trying to get attention for myself in some way. No, they were legitimately having these dreams and these visions about the Christ that changed their lives, that changed their faith, that made them want to recognize him as the true savior and that they can't deny him anymore. Jesus wasn't just some prophet of Muhammad. He was literally the son of God and that they needed him to die and come back to life so that they too may have a chance for eternal life. Well, not just a chance, a guaranteed chance when you become one with him. Again, everyone's hearts echoes with the truth of the scriptures and the truth of Jesus. So knowing for absolute, 100%, without a doubt, a surety that what the Bible said is true, that everyone's heart of hearts knows the biblical God, that should make us be a lot bolder, shouldn't it? I mean, it means that we should not be so shy and worried that whenever we speak to someone about the truth of God's word and about the message of the gospel and of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection, we shouldn't feel like we're talking to aliens from another planet. They are human beings just like us who are all born with the knowledge that the biblical God exists. And as Christians, regardless if you are a creative person or not, and regardless if the other person even heard the name Jesus, it's up to us to show the things that are so familiar to them that they do not recognize as coming from scripture to really be coming from scripture. And then to show them that Jesus fills the philosophical pitfalls and gaps in their half-biblical logic. Christian non-creatives, you can catch these echoes and direct them to Christ. And Christian creatives, even in a roundabout way, you can take these echoes of truth in people's hearts and use them to prove to them how familiar the biblical God actually is to them. Personally, I think one of the best examples of this put into practice, if you want to see it in action, would be Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Honestly, there is so much to this section of scripture that it would take me too long in this show to go over every little nitnoid, 
But in your own time, I highly recommend the next time you open your Bible for your own personal study, just take a while in Acts 17, 16 through 34. Again, I highly recommend you go over this whole passage in your own time. And I'd even further recommend that you have a good commentary nearby or a study Bible. There is just so much context that a person can miss when you are not familiar with the ancient Grecian world of that time. It's just too rich for me to go over within a reasonable amount of time. And I think I'm already making this show probably long enough at this point. But allow me just for a few seconds to zero in on verse 22. And this is the point in the passage when men of Athens were hearing Paul beginning to speak about Christ and the resurrection. And they decided they wanted him to come to their amphitheater so he can speak to all of them. Because in Athens, that's what they like to do. They like to debate. They like to investigate new things and they weren't sure what to make of what Paul was peddling they kind of thought oh is this a new religion we're curious we want to hear about it and it's also important to recognize that while Paul was speaking this sermon he was mostly talking to two groups of people there were the Epicureans and there were the Stoics and to kind of help you understand what these two groups believed in allow me to read this little commentary I have in my personal study bible In terms of the Epicureans, Epicureanism began with Epicurus, who lived in 341 to 270 BC, who argued that the world was made of atoms and that the world was purely material. Epicureans attempted to free people from the idea of the gods, the afterlife, and the fear of death, and that the only value that remained was the physical reality of the individual, and thus the individual was freed from fear to pursue what truly gave pleasure. So Epicurus stressed that contentment and nobility produce the best, most enjoyable life. And then on the opposite side, we have the Stoics. And Stoicism was founded by Zeno in the 3rd century BC. Contrary to Epicureanism, Stoicism contended that the physical universe is empowered by a reasoning force known as Logos, which connects the divine with the material. Ethically, Stoics attempted to live in accordance with the natural laws they observed and systemized. So here Paul is speaking to two extremists. You could kind of say the Epicureans are more or less like the atheists of the ancient world. They didn't believe there was any supernatural things involved. And then the Stoics, you could kind of see as an early form of New Age religion. So these two sides are practically two extremes. Yet listen to how Paul begins his sermon in verse 22. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, or Areopagus, I hope I'm reading that right, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown? This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So what we're seeing here is that even though Athens was divided between Stoics and Epicureans, two sides that try to systemize and rationalize 
why either there is no spiritual world and we should just live to be content or there is a spiritual world and it speaks as a force through nature. Paul just up front says, actually, you guys are very religious because I see in the middle of your city a statue to the unknown God. And from that point, Paul jumps on the fact that everyone in their heart of hearts knows that there is a God. The Athenians, whether they meant to or not, are reaching toward a god. And if that's simply all it was, they could continue worshipping Athena, you know, the patron goddess of Athens, and then call it a day. But yet they still put up the statue to the unknown god. Because there's a dissatisfaction with Athena, isn't there? There's a dissatisfaction with the pantheon that they have. And even then, there's also a dissatisfaction with their own personal beliefs, whether there is a spiritual world or there isn't a spiritual world. Point being, it's not just simply that they are reaching for a God, they're reaching for a specific kind of God. But it's a God that they don't know personally. They know he's there, they just don't know him personally. And then Paul, as you read on your own, proceeds to identify Jesus as the Christ and the biblical God as the God they've been seeking. And he even does so using familiar terms that both Epicureans and Stoics would be familiar with and that they use all the time. Paul catches the echoes, unmasks the wrong assumptions they've made about these echoes, then reveals their true source and why Jesus is the solution to all that they lack. Ladies and gentlemen, Christian creatives and non-Christian creatives, if you've joined your life to Christ, you may feel like a minority. In fact, you are a minority. And you may feel like a tiny voice crying in that wilderness where no one's going to listen. And you may hear that tiny, doubtful voice insisting nobody's going to understand anything about what you're saying or your God or Jesus. You are one in a rare few in this world. And yes, that is true. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life, and few are those who find it. However, when everyone's lives do bear the fingerprints of the same loving, righteous creator God, your voice is suddenly joined with the mightiest and most pervasive voice imaginable. Your voice is joined to the only voice that actually counts, one that is impossible to 100% ignore, whether they accept it or they don't accept it. So be bold, be courageous, share the gospel with your neighbor, theme your story after a scriptural verse, capture the love of God in your painting, because God has equipped you with his Holy Spirit, to hear the weak whispers of his name that are echoing in everyone's hearts, and calls you to catch those faint echoes and transform them into a clearly understood sweeping song of human fallenness and God's grace. Thanks again for joining me here on Flying Faith Talks. And hey, if you really like this podcast and you'd like to learn more about me or the website, subscribe to flyingfaith.org and follow Flying Faith on Facebook, MeWe, Instagram, and Pinterest. And hey, subscribers receive exclusive content like updates on the website, updates on my books, sneak peeks, chances for prizes, and the opportunity to connect with me. Anyway, that's all for today. Thanks, guys, and come back soon.